So we have this running joke at our house when things don't go our kids' way, when they're in the middle of blaming us for something. Add it to the therapy list. I've also found that as your kids get older, the arguments move from how late can you stay up and how nice you should be to your brother and sister, and they shift to something else. Money. And it isn't always pretty. My guest today calls this your money story. Everyone's got one. What did you learn about money growing up? Were there big moments around money? A dear friend thought everyone bought groceries with those stamp things. The nonprofit sector has serious money hangups. That means that board and staff leaders have serious money hangups. And they hang us up big time. Think about these questions. Is it okay to make a good salary as a nonprofit ED? And on what other planet would that even be a question? When you have financial challenges, does your finance committee go directly to cutting expenses? The jargon there is leading from scarcity and not leading from abundance. Is there panic about spending too much money on what feels like a four-letter word but is actually eight letters? Overhead? Ah, then there's fundraising. How you feel about asking or giving money is completely shaped by how you relate to money, what you think about it. Have you ever encountered an executive director with downright disdain for rich people? That executive director has, as my guest will call it, a money story she needs to revisit and acknowledge. So today, we talk money. Our conversation may be less prescriptive than others I've had on this podcast, but it may just be one of the most enlightening. Welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. Not enough money, too many cooks, and an abundance of passion. Leading nonprofits isn't easy. Joan Gary, the dear Abby of nonprofits, gets it, and she is here to help. Belinda Rosenblum is a CPA and wealth expert who helps you take the worry and fear out of money. Most people struggle to stay ahead of their monthly bills and just never learned how to be great earners or money managers. Belinda and her company ownyourmoney.com offer a four-part plan that makes you, helps you make the most of your money now while providing for the future. Today, she'll bring her experience as a nonprofit consultant and board member for over 10 years uh, to help our audience today think about money in their own organizations, especially when it comes to salaries and fundraising. She's also the creator of the Money Makers Academy and the co-author of Self-Worth to Net Worth. 12 Keys to Creating Wealth Inside and Out, both offering a step-by-step approach to help you build your financial self-esteem and manage your own financial life. When she's not talking about money, she's probably enjoying the sunshine, chasing after her marathon-running husband, college-bound stepdaughter, college-bound, and two spirited toddlers, Belinda. Uh, Belinda Rosenblum also has terrific online resources from a fantastic quiz, which we'll talk about in a little bit, to online courses and a membership site. Belinda, those are good, excellent credentials to be someone to talk with us about money today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me here, Joan. It's really, um, it's a privilege. Well, good. Um, So important. Let's start right at the beginning. When you first, when we first met, you intrigued me. You said, everyone has a money story. I had no idea what you were talking about. So why don't you tell us what you mean? Sure. So uh, let's see. Your money story is the culmination of everything that you saw, heard, or did around money from childhood to now. 
And so what happens is that I find, especially with nonprofit leaders and really leaders in general, they think that they can compartmentalize. So they can be one person out of the office and then someone else in the office. But really you're the same person and will naturally bring your beliefs from your personal life into how you lead in the workplace. And so around money, what happens is that we form these beliefs throughout our life based on our experiences. And so what happens is from each interaction that you have, you draw a conclusion and thus a belief about who you are, what's possible for you and how money plays out in your life. And then all of these interactions weave together to create a story. And your story is getting written quite unconsciously and for years. It starts quite early, very young, usually around four to seven even. And it's interesting, I actually have a four-year-old. And I think to myself, oh gosh, like, what did I just do? That's probably forming some money story for him now, you know? And um, and I'm, I'm very conscious to it. And so what happens is that you're essentially living your life today based on the decisions that you made about what happened starting when you were a young child. And keep in mind, you made it with the mind of a young child. And that's why sometimes you may even notice sometimes when you're triggered, you'll like, you'll have a visceral reaction. And in the nonprofit case, maybe it's to someone who donates a lot, someone who, you know, makes a lot and then donates a little bit. And it's usually triggering some some belief that you created early on, like some generalizations, but like, let's just say someone that makes a lot of money doesn't donate a lot. And you're like, oh my gosh, they must be, you know, selfish or keeping their money for something. And then catch yourself. Like those bits of awareness can be very eye-opening. And that's a lot of what we're going to, you know, or some of what we're going to talk about today in terms of understanding that you form these beliefs early and then you've now continued them over 10, 20, 30, 40 plus years and living your life on them very unconsciously generally because these beliefs are then driving our thoughts, which drive our feelings, which determine our actions and they create our results. And so what happens is we create this cycle. And so our results sometimes feel like an accident or a surprise or they feel like we're, we're on the same hamster wheel. Like, why does this keep happening to me? Well, it's because it's the same beliefs that are triggering the cycle. So that's why we'll, we'll find ourselves creating similar results. So what you're talking about is sort of a life experience um, and moments in your life that, that put some kind of judgment on money or some, some sort of, that, that money is no longer like an objective thing. It's something about which there is some context and emotions or is that, is that, cause is that what you're talking about? Like when you just said, you just said, um, boy, that person should give more money. They're, they're rich and they're being s- selfish. Like there's a, that's a judgment call about money. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. Yeah. So what happens is if you can imagine your money story, imagine like a book, right? There's several chapters of the story. And so what um, happens is that we have these pivotal money moments throughout that story. So think of those like each chapter. And then in those moments, we are creating judgments or beliefs about something that happened that then we hold on to, it's like we lock in. And it's often usually that it's almost like the simpler the conclusion is, the more, the easier it is for us to lock it in. So let's give, let's bring it to life for people. Can you give me an example of what you might mean by a pivotal money moment? Absolutely. So, and it's actually helpful for everyone listening to, to listen to these examples and then think about 
well, what could be some of my pivotal money moments? And even like literally grab a pen and paper and start to just brainstorm what those could be for you. So um, these money moments are often particular instances or experiences that happen in our life. And sometimes they can also, though, be a series of instances that create a pattern together. So let me give you two examples here. One is Justin. So he came to me with what are more the symptoms. So oftentimes people don't realize the belief that's underneath it. So he comes to me saying, okay, I'm making good money in my, in my business. He was an entrepreneur, but I find that I'm not able to hold on to it. It's like I'm uncomfortable. I feel this need to spend it. And then I'm dating this really great woman and I find myself very distrustful of her around money. And I'm not really sure what's happening. And I see this all the time, Joan. I'll tell you whether they're an entrepreneur or they have a, a good job. It's like they can't hold on to money. They can't let themselves save it. And so we dug into it. I said, okay, tell me a little bit about what it was like for you growing up around money. He said, well, Money was tight for sure. And he said, you know, I remember this particular instance that happened when I was young. I said, okay, let's get into that. So he was a paper boy, <laughs> maybe dating myself here, but back when there was yes. like delivered newspapers, right? That we let our children go out on a bicycle and deliver. So he was a paper boy and, <laughs> and he would deliver papers and then um, get paid for that, you know, get some it was almost like pocket change, but to him when he was seven, like that was a really big deal. So he'd bring it home, he'd put it in his piggy bank, put it in his piggy bank, and he was saving up for a new bicycle. And so he was, it was really starting to get some weight to this piggy bank. And then one day he comes home and the piggy bank is empty. And he runs to his mom and he says, mom, mom, we've been robbed. And she says, what are you talking about, Justin? He said, look, my piggy bank is empty and it was almost full. Like, call the police, <laughs> something happened. <laughs> And she said, we can laugh about it now, thank God, but it was really traumatic for this poor kid. And so um, his mom said, no, I needed the money. I took the money out and I used some of it to, you know, for dinner that you're going to eat tonight and some of it to pay for the roof over your head. And um, yeah, I took it. And oh my, oh my gosh. gosh, like from that point on, that was basically his pivotal money moment where he concluded, okay, <clears throat> that... It wasn't safe to keep money in a piggy bank. Like literally it wasn't safe to keep money in the bank or to hold on to money. He concluded that he couldn't trust his mother with money. And then he expanded that to even he couldn't trust women with money. So everything um, that he was living through currently was a manifestation of what had started over 30 years before. And once we started to dig into it, I helped him to reframe it. So we stepped back and looked at what were the facts of the situation. And then it was really that, his mom didn't make a lot of money in what she was doing and she needed the money literally to help provide for the family. And so we helped right. him reframe it. So he was basically a provider at age seven for the family and look at the courage and strength and ability that he had. And thank goodness he had been as driven as he was as a child and just completely reframed it. And literally it was like, I remember I'd circled back with him like a year later and everything had started to shift. His business had grown because a lot of times people, when they don't trust themselves to hold on to money, they don't bother making more money. They don't bother asking for more money. And something like that will probably come up when we talk salaries, because I think that that happens as well for our nonprofit leaders. So he could change the conclusions when he could bring a different awareness and even recognize that that incident was having a hold on him now so many years later. Then there's also the instance of Stephanie. So Stephanie, I just spoke with a couple of weeks ago and she said, you know, I realize I'm repeating this patterning that I saw when I was young because my mom, um, 
my father passed away. He was 39. I was very young. And I watched my mom struggle with money all the time. Like it was constantly steal from Peter to pay Paul. And she just watched all that stress and it created a lot for her at the time. She was the oldest and she really took much of it on. She helped take care of her brother and sister. And then even now it's like everything with money is laden with this source of stress. And like I said, the more basic it is, she concluded money is stressful. So she locked that in really tight. And it was like she could still hear her mom saying some of those very like scarcity-based beliefs that she grew up with when they literally would say, we can't afford it. And so again, we worked through this process where she looked at the facts of the situation that helped her see that, you know, yes, her dad passed away when she was young. Her dad was actually an alcoholic and had not taken great care of the money. So nor did he let her mom help at all. So she watched not positive, you know, money management coming from her dad. And then her mom just really struggled because she did the best she could, but she didn't have any role models either. Right. Right. And so, and her mom was never taught about money or ever really had the chance to be an independent adult with money. Right. So then we helped her reframe it to see, well, what else could it have meant? That's what I literally encourage people to ask themselves is to, to say like, well, what else could it have meant? And just keep asking that like seven times, 10 times, like what else could it have meant? And so what, what I helped her get to, and she's, this is around when the tears started, you know, she started to get like, she, her mom was learning how to do everything. The reality was that she didn't really want Stephanie didn't really want for anything when she was um, growing up and that her mom always found a way, you know, she um, was codependent and she wanted the best. The mom really wanted the best for her children. And so lots of decisions had been made out of fear, but the reality was that her mom really loved her children. She wanted to provide and her mom was scared, but she had a lot of courage to push through and to learn what she needed to learn at the time. And, you know, and so it's just really about finding forgiveness, you know, reframing it, creating some awareness around it. And in this case, even cutting the cord with this feeling that if she loved her mom, it meant that she was continuing um, that patterning. I just figured something out. I just figured out that you're actually a money shrink, aren't you? Yes, I have been called that, yeah. a financial uh, therapist no... of sorts. Yeah, I've never right. been trained. I actually almost what, considered going back to school 10 years ago, um, or actually 11 now, when I was in between jobs, I left my for-profit job. I almost went into nonprofits, actually, and really even considered going back and becoming a, um, a therapist mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, now you practice without but a license. You now practice I practice with... it. Yeah. <laughs> You practice. No, you, I, oh, I do it. All right. Uh, under, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, under so a money shrink with a CPA okay. instead of a, uh, an MSW. Um, there you so go. There you go. Let's yeah. shift it now. Let's talk. Let's talk. So we've, we've, you've given our listeners a really good insight into what we mean by the money story and sort of how it, mm-hmm. how we, uh, how our life experience and our lives and the, uh, th- those things shape our relationship to mm-hmm. money. So now let's mm-hmm. let's put it into the nonprofit sector for um, the board and staff leaders who are listening. Um, when you hear some, when you hear a money story, does it offer you insight about what kind of board member, fundraiser, or nonprofit leader someone's going to be? Like, how do you? I mean, you've done a lot of work with nonprofits. You've been on boards. I, I am mm-hmm. also intrigued about whether or not you can backfill and like figure out 
oh, that person had this kind of money story because they they probably had this kind of money story because they are this kind of fundraiser or something like that. Yes, I end up reverse engineering it sometimes, right? Yeah. Like when when Justin came to me, then I could help him see, okay, wait, let's go back because my instinct is that something happened where money was taken from you. Can you think of anything like that? So sometimes I can even direct it, right? Mm-hmm. And then, um, and I'm even happy, Joan, if you want to talk about your money story or just a pivotal money moment that happened and give people like a nonprofit example if you wanted to. So uh-huh. just the offer stands. So you can I- think about that. I will. I, I, you know what? I want. Uh, uh, um, I will. I'll think about that while you answer this sort of next question. Is sort of how does this? Sure. How does this extrapolate sure. for our listeners? How does this extrapolate into um, into non- yeah the nonprofit world? Absolutely. Yeah. So um, so it will often show up in terms of our beliefs or judgments and the level and. I kind of touched on this earlier, but let me expand on it now. Either the level of scarcity or the level of judgment that we have. And some of the major areas where we'll see it in the nonprofit world will be around this idea of of salaries and overhead and what we deserve to get paid. And then also around fundraising in terms of our willingness to do it or not and kind of our view on it and our... um, our ability to find the abundance and the joy in the philanthropy of it versus feeling very scarce and um, uh, like the analogy you use in terms of it's almost like, you know, are we trying to take a crowbar to somebody's wallet? It's like, that's the, that's the context that I feel like fundraising has. And it's almost like it has this like um, convincing, like sleazy salesperson. Right, so I was just going to say like a used car salesman. I, I, so people say, yeah. and I talk to people on, when I talk to boards, I said, what, what do you think you're trying to sell an old lemon, you know, Ford, blah, right. blah, blah. That no one wants. Right. right? You I know, mean, that's like the last one on the lot. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And so, yeah. And I think that sometimes it's, it's bringing consciousness to all of this, right. In terms of how do we relate it? And this is where you know, I, I have a, a quiz actually even that helps to highlight what are some of the beliefs or what are some of the skills that we might be missing personally that are then translating into how we do our job currently. And so when we live with this unconscious judgment around money, and oftentimes until we shine some light, they're really non-supportive beliefs. I even call it our BS. It stands for belief system, but it's really like this non-supportive beliefs that we are carrying around. In some cases, BS actually, um, (laughs) because it's just not true, right? We form this as this young child, but it's just not true. And so what I encourage everybody to do is to then really bring a gentle awareness to how you grew up, to some of the conclusions that you've reached and how you're now unconsciously living those out in the context of your own nonprofit. So if you find that you tend towards shying away from something that would be a bigger risk, something that would in, in, you know require you to have a bigger um, thinking like, well, what could we do? What kind of bigger event could we do? Oftentimes I think that people shy away from risk because then they think, oh, then I have to go fundraise. Right. Like for us to do this big um, campaign or this big um, event, it would mean that we're going to have to ask even more people for money. And I don't want to do that or I don't want to be a part of the organization that's having to do that. And so it's recognizing, though, that that 
you could really best serve your organization by letting go of your own limiting beliefs around money and what's possible. And instead, really think about how can our nonprofit have a bigger impact in the world? Like if we raise more money, what else could we do? Who else can we help? right? If we did this event, how many people would it engage? And like, I know that, you know, Dan Pilat is, is somewhat controversial, but like what he did to increase engagement was quite revolutionary. So for those listeners who may not know Dan, Dan is, uh, he is the, the, the kind of the reigning king on the subject of what he calls the overhead myth. There's some excellent, is in both an, a couple of excellent TED talks you can find that really um, give you a sense of his messaging and he will is an upcoming podcast guest as well. So um, I think, you know, it's, it's so interesting. I was just working with a client the other day talking about budgeting and that I, that I feel like board members are off, let off the hook when they're bu- presented a budget because they're presented a balanced budget. So they don't know all of the um, Yiddish term, the Michigas that went on behind mm-hmm. the scenes mm-hmm. Um, to cut all the things that the program people wanted to do in order to balance the budget. But so I encourage people to um, actually show the board members the list of things that didn't make it into the budget so that they can then say, oh my gosh, well, we, sh- we totally need to do that. Mm-hmm. Right. And so that they then have this perspective, not of, yay, we have a balanced budget, but wow, I, I, I really, I think the organization ought to do this. And then it becomes a different way of thinking about money, money and raising it because it, it's about opportunity. Right. Right. And it's almost like you want the visioning conversation to make sure that it happens before that budget conversation, right? So that if you can get the buy-in early on to say, yes, this is where we want to be in five years or in 10 years. So then what do we need the next few years to look like to start to lay that groundwork? And sure, you can have the sort of most likely case maybe is your balance budget, but to allow yourself to say, you know what, if we did this on the top line, what could we do on the bottom line and have the two relate to each other instead of being mutually exclusive? We are talking with Belinda Rosenblum. I, um, she is a CPA and a wealth expert who is talking to us today about the connection between sort of your emotional connection to money and how it impacts you as a nonprofit leader. Belinda is the uh, creator of the Money Moneymakers Academy and the co-author of Self-Worth to Net Worth. 12 keys to creating wealth inside and out. That's I love that. I love that phrase and stay with me because we're also going to talk about Belinda's quiz. That's at ownyourmoney.com, which she has edited a bit so that it is perfect for nonprofit leaders to take. And we'll talk more about that before we end. We've talked, so we talked a little bit about uh, a little bit about overhead, a little bit about, um, about fundraising. Mm -hmm. Let's go to that, that, nonprofit salary thing for a minute. So, and I do, I, I am I'm not, by the way, I'm not ignoring your question about my pivotal money moment. I will come back to it. I sure. promise. So, um, so the story, this is not my money story. This is my salary okay. story. So when I was a nonprofit ED in the LGBT sector, the, one of the big, um, LGBT papers would do an annual survey of salaries. And, um, 
of all, all of the leaders in the sector and how much money they made because they've grabbed them from the the ten the the, uh, the nine nineties, and uh, one year. I came out on top. <laughs> the last and place you want to be on. I got, probably, yeah. <laughs> right. And so, and I, um, and I got these calls from all my colleagues saying, thank God you're at the top of the list. And there was just, I got emails from people talk, you know, nasty emails from people. Um, and, um, of course, then I, then I had to go to an all, you know, I had an all staff meeting that day and I felt like I was going with absolutely no clothes on because everybody knew how much money I made. Um, which, you know, that's somehow or another, that must be some part of my money story too. But, uh, okay. So what does it tell us about this? So you have to make less money because you do good work. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yes. And I actually loved your article. I'll tell you, um, that was on your website about this that um, titled, Is It Okay for Nonprofit Leaders to Make Big Salaries? And it's uh, (laughs) like I read that, you know? Oh, they ran the gamut for sure. (laughs) You know, I think there were some people who really appreciated it and other people who just really had a hard time. And I think it's interesting because I read those and I almost, this is the, I guess the money shrink in me, right? I'm almost reading those like, oh, I wonder what their money story is underneath that. They probably think X, you know, when I was going through those. And, um, and I really look at it uh, differently because I really believe that we shouldn't have to choose. We shouldn't have to choose between doing good and making good money. They can complement each other and not be mutually exclusive. I actually think that it will help fuel your excitement and your fulfillment daily if you enjoy what you're creating in the world and you're getting paid for it, right? Like I do this now. I, I started my own business because I couldn't find somebody else that was doing this. This was back in 2007 when I started. And... Um, I love the fact that I can help so many people and do such great work in the world and get paid for it. And I think that if I didn't get paid for it, I mean, I will tell you a lot of business owners are unintentional nonprofits. And I I think that that they would be much better served by not bringing a level of desperation to everything they do because, and the same thing goes for nonprofit leaders. Money can be secondary for most of us. I get that. I don't think that we're doing it for the money, but we do need to pay our bills. And if we're struggling to pay our bills at home and we're struggling to provide for our families and make the contribution that we want to the household, then naturally, again, a bit unconsciously, we may come to resent what we're doing. We'll feel overworked, underpaid. But yep. I want to. But, but, but hang on Sorry. a second, Belinda, because it's it's not just about it's not just about struggling to pay your bills. So if I'm a nonprofit leader and I am a, a paid poorly, there's I'm I might have you know I might have an affluent spouse, and so it doesn't you know it's it's not there's not an issue about struggling to pay your bills, but there's an issue about fairness mm-hmm. and equity. And I think right how we view our own right? worth and and value that we're delivering. Right, because it, that, or know. or what is it like? You know, if I run a four million dollar nonprofit versus somebody who runs a twenty million dollar nonprofit, doesn't it say take the same amount of skills and expertise? And so there's there's also a sort of a secretary, a sort of nonprofit salary ranges mm-hmm. and like all of that sort of thing that I think people just ignore because they feel like, oh well, you know. <laughs> If I if I if I ask for that raise, I'm going to just have to raise that money because my board is going to give it to me um, reluctantly, and then and they're not going to fundraise anyway. 
Right. Well, it, it all comes together, right? This is the whole balanced budget kind of an idea. Um, but I, I, and thank you for the kind of where I was going next, which is like once you've paid for the kind of getting by-ness, the baseline expenses that you're looking for, then there's also that above and beyond, which really helps to quantify your value. Now, I would imagine that someone who's running a $500,000 nonprofit versus a $4 million versus a twenty or $100 million will get paid something different. But I think what um, what's happening is that there's this um, societal decision that people who work in nonprofits should, in quotes, make less money than people who make who work in for profits, which I think is just absolutely ridiculous, and that it's it's looking at what are the skills you're bringing to the table, what's the value that you're bringing, and to some extent you get what you pay for. Usually not always like some very talented people will choose to go into nonprofits. I completely appreciate that. And, um, and many are talented and just underpaid. Right. And so what, but why, why, why? Why? What do you want to do about why? it? Yeah. Why? I mean, I, I, I'm not, yes, mm. both. There's two questions is why is it that because I do good work, I should make less money. What's that? I mean, it's not just about a particular individual. It's about a whole sector that feels like it's pervasive. Oh, I completely agree that it is. I mean, I think that it's a, um, I think part of it is this um, stigma, putting salaries into overhead and then putting a stigma around the level of overhead that, um, that nonprofits have with this idea that, well, if the money is going to, uh, overhead, then that means it's not going to the people that we wanted to help. So I, I take a much more expansive view. I would much rather see us increase the pie. And yes, it may take some fundraising, but just being okay with that and being committed to the fact that you want to raise the standard of excellence, of value, of what your organization can create in the world and not feel limited by this, um, the stigma that salaries have. And I don't think this is just leaders. I think this goes for the staff too. It's kind of like a tone from the top type of thing in terms of what I'll bet the staff gets paid accordingly. And I certainly don't buy into it. I would encourage people to just take a step back and say, what's really the number that you believe that you want to make? And what could be your plan to really demonstrate the value to the organization? What would the organization need to do to raise salaries? I feel like this is very controversial. <laughs> All these nonprofit leaders are going to be like, oh, <laughs> what is Belinda telling us to do? But, um, but, you know, sometimes we need that, right? We need to be pushed. I think we end up in this default and we end up in this, like, um, the way it's been is the way it always has to be. And I will right. often like push people to someplace different, to someplace where they want to be, but that they've never really allowed themselves to be. And this is some of that thinking bigger. This is some of that taking risks, but really saying, okay, wait, if I set aside for a moment that fundraising is sales, right? If I set that aside, I'm not trying to convince somebody into something. I'm trying to allow them right. to to continue their legacy, to find their joy, to, to have a way that they can give back and I can help facilitate that, then what could our organization create in the world? And just set aside the numbers, set aside the reality of the situation, do this with maybe that board member that has a bigger vision that you know things bigger in their own organization. And, and 
really like brainstorm, like what could that look like? And as you expand the pie, how do you also expand the salaries as a part of that pie? So two things come up for me. One is I, I just finished a, um, a short video that'll be released in the next couple of weeks. And it is um, just talking about if, um, reframing what oh, fundraising great. is mm-hmm. and thinking about yourself as being in the invitation mm-hmm. business. <clears throat> that if you, if you think about fundraising as an invitation to join you in a, at a remarkable place that does remarkable work. It's a completely different mm-hmm. framing device and it goes to what you were uh, just describing. I think the other thing for me is this sort of an interesting yin and, yin and yang about your, about your comments because it's essentially, essentially you're talking about the emotional attachment, the, the emotional connections mm-hmm. people have to money. And, um, one of the things that's really interesting about that for me is that people donate to causes largely not because of some, you know, ROI, like I want to give you $5,000 because I want you to grow, you know, impact people by an additional 20% next year. And if I don't see that, I mean, I'm going to give you $500 so $5,000. They give because, of, because you have triggered their amygdala and ignited them in some way that has made, that has triggered their emotions. So, so it's, it's, it's an interesting, it's interesting for me as I listen to you is it's, it's two different kinds of emotions when it comes to money in nonprofits. And I just wonder if you had thoughts about that or that made sense. Absolutely. So what I'm looking to have people do is to leave behind the non-supportive emotions, like the, the limiting beliefs that really aren't serving you to be your best person in your organization as the leader, whether it's the ED, the board member, you know, the team, but really um, setting aside the limiting beliefs and allowing yourself to bring awareness to what hasn't, what has been happening and hasn't been serving you. And Oftentimes, it's actually easier to see it first personally and then translate that into how you are in your organization and then step into the more positive beliefs, so reframing those negative ones, stepping into the more positive ones, and then tying in who you are from this more positive view to then how you do your role and how you can allow how you are connected to the passion for why you do what you do and what your organization is creating to then help that be almost magnetic when you're inviting people to join the party, right? And to make a bigger contribution um, quantitatively or qualitatively in terms of like showing up and engaging and helping make introductions and being, you know, a part of the events, but also like it's like when you're magnetic and when you're, um, you know, I see it when in terms of a magnet to money, like people will literally like, I just ran into a person Saturday that said, you know, when you had talked about um, making, uh, you know, X amount of uh, dollars, <clears throat> I had talked about making $30,000 a month for her because I really had this bigger vision for her. And she was like, I totally couldn't get uh-huh. it three years ago. I had to just work my way into it. She just made $25,000 in a week. Right. And so some of this is really expanding what you've ever thought of as possible for yourself, for your organization, and allowing the passion you have to help you better invite people, to help you better, yes, feel fulfilled in what you do, and to um, 
really grow your organization to that next level and not feel stuck in what you've created so far, but to think like, okay, if I were to 10 X my organization, what would that look like? Because there's one level of thinking that's keeping you where you are, but I really, when people can let go of the limiting beliefs, they can start to think so much bigger for what's possible and the impact that you can be bringing to the world. We are nearly out of time and I have, so I want to, I want to do two things quickly. Um, so I'm pretty sure that my money story, uh, or at least what I think is my money story, has something to do with how my parents thought about people who are wealthy. My parents were not, you know, we didn't suffer for anything. They, they were, you know, sort of painfully middle class. And, but uh, they would drive down the street and then look at a big house and they wouldn't say, oh my gosh, that's a big, beautiful house. They would say, I, I don't know why anybody would need a house like that. It's like a mansion, as if it was like a four-letter mm-hmm. word. And I, um, I don't know if that's a money story or whether I just thought that that was really unfair of them to judge somebody based on how much money they made. Uh, and I, I feel like that was p- sort of part of my part of my money story was just my parents' disdain for pe- for for wealth um, that they were quite open about. Seems it, it it really upset me that they would cast judgment like that around something like money. And I don't know if that, I don't know what that, what tells you doctor and if there's a prescription. (laughs) So um, maybe I should change what CPA stands for or something. Okay. So yeah, well, it was interesting when you were telling me this story, disdain was exactly the word that I thought of. And what happens for most people, it's interesting. You have been able to step away from the natural conclusion that they reached in a very mature way. And so much of the time what happens is that when we see our parents model a disdain for wealth, what it does is it then creates a similar disdain for us. So we either match or mirror what we see. So if we match it, we essentially believe something very similar. If we mirror it, we often look at it exactly the opposite. So like if somebody grew up um, not having the things that they wanted, uh, then once they are a grown up, they buy whatever they want. That's the mirroring. They do the opposite, right? They're like, I'm not gonna, um, I'm not gonna be in that scarcity again. So I think there's another thing, yeah, which is that I think we also get shaped by who we surround ourselves with. And so my my wife has a different, way way different money story, mm-hmm. and was able to get me sort of help me think about money in a different sort mm-hmm. of way. Um, and I'm I'm not gonna go into mm-hmm. her money story because that's her mm-hmm. story to mm-hmm. tell. But it's just because she had a very different money story that how we, in, how we interact over the last 35 years around money has been shaped by sort of the give and take about our um, sort of emotional connections yeah. to it. Um, and interestingly enough is it's, well, you know what? It's too long a story. No, We're, no. It's so, <laughs> we'll have to save my... For another day. But it's fascinating. Maybe for, for our uh, yeah. nonprofit leadership lab uh, conversation or something. Exactly. But, um, you know, exactly. I think it's interesting. So, yes, I mean, it's a lot of why I actually created an academy, like a community, so that people felt like they had a safe place to explore their uh, beliefs and behaviors around money. Because so much of the time, we don't feel comfortable bringing any of this, the good, you know, the bad, the ugly, whatever, but even the really good to the people in our life. Because oftentimes 
like for instance, let's use some of those examples of what could have happened, right? If your parents have a disdain for wealth, <clears throat> when you then come home and you say, Hey, I got a raise. I'm making all this money. They might be like, Oh, are you going to turn into one of them? And then as soon as correct, that's exactly what I think they right. think I did. Right. And so, but then it's not safe to bring that celebration to them. And what a lot of people will do is they'll just dampen themselves. It's like you put a wet blanket on you and then you're like, well, then what's the point? You know, are my parents going to think less of me now? But what's, what you have, have had a um, beautiful counterpart in your partner is to then have somebody on the other side that can say, you know what, like now look what you're able to create in the world. You know, and to, to really look at, look at that, you're creating so much value in the world. People want to pay you for that and not having it mean that you are less of a person in any way because you're making more money. And so oftentimes when people grow up with parents who have a disdain for wealth, they literally will not want to be a person that has money in the bank, a person that becomes wealthy in quotes, right? Or a rich person, right? Because they then won't want to lose the love of their parents. So you fortunately have had someone that's kind of interceded in those conclusions and helped you to reframe it. Well, and, and, and really this, this could become a complete psychology uh, discussion, but it's also about, um, whether, what other factors lead you to having your relationship with your parents, right? And I used used to say that I was just absolutely not what my mother ordered. And, um, and that played in, uh, that played in as well. So there's all kinds of factors, I think, um, that, that your relationship with your family is, there's about money and it's about a lot of other things as well. Mm-hmm. So absolutely. Well, it's interesting, right? And good for you for, for bringing on experts that aren't in the nonprofit field necessarily to help it, relate it though, to the struggles that, that your leaders are having. So, so thank you. Yeah. Um, uh, so uh, you're welcome. Um, I, I think this is a great conversation. So I have one more question and then we absolutely have okay. to run because I, I imagine people on elliptical machines are stuck in traffic and they're probably nearing the parking lot or, mm-hmm. uh, just about out of time on their machine. Got it. So advice for those folks that are listening, um, right? If we have a money story, we have a relationship to money. How do we, is it, is it a changeable thing? Do I just add it to the therapy list? What? (laughs) It may always be on the Um, therapy list to some extent, but yes. And and, yeah. Right. And, and also, um, toss in, toss in the quiz. Cause I, I, I like the quiz and I think it's actually part of this is part of this reason I wanted you to join me is because you actually have to think about it and start the conversation. That's kind of a big piece of it, isn't it? Absolutely. You have to make it okay to have that conversation, right? I think much of the time we just try and push it under the rug and pretend that that money doesn't matter, right? That we're a nonprofit. So that means that we don't have to care about money. We don't have, but really like money is what helps us fund the impact that we're able to have on the world. Um, right. And I'll use like hashtag fund your fun. And so it's really getting that the more funds that we can help create, uh, the more that you can uh, do in the world. And so, yes, it's absolutely fixable. The first step is awareness. And so it's recognizing that there are likely money skills that you need. And it's an awareness of the, um, relationship to money that you've had in the past and then starting to bring a new perspective on the future, on what's possible moving forward. And so it was really a lot of the incentive for why I created this, the quiz in the first place. And I just wanted to clarify one thing. It's at ownermoney.com forward slash Joan. So our 
Um, we have one quiz that is kind of for the masses, and I've tailored it to be a little bit more specific for our nonprofit leaders in those questions. So um, I would suggest that you take that one. And then I'll explore it deeper in a masterclass in the lab itself. Um, but it, it in itself will give you some insights into the beliefs and the behaviors that you currently have around money, and then some ideas at the end about shifts that you could be making and starting to notice what, where do I want to be heading to? Because so much of it is like, where do I start? So I really wanted to give people a, a specific place to know the exact skills that you want to be developing to move yourself forward personally, as well as professionally in your organization. It sounds, um, it sounds like it would be a mighty powerful thing to do before a staff or a board retreat. Mm. Um, if you, you know, again, if you could get buy-in from the participants around it to have the participants take the quiz and then, you know, if you're lucky and, you know, if you have a facilitator or something to, to sort of help people guide them through sort of what are the, what are the outcomes of the quiz? What is, how does it tell, what does it tell us about, our relationship to money and overhead and salaries. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's a, I think it's a really powerful, powerful tool. So I really appreciate your, um, uh, shifting it up for, um, mm -hmm. for our listeners. Um, any last comments? We really actually, I, I do have to close this out, but any, any last things you want to, any, anything else you want to add before we go? Sure. Um, I'd say, especially if you do something like that with, with, people like your team with the board, just make sure that you have created a very safe space for yourself Agreed. and for them, right? Because it's a place where oftentimes we have a lot of feelings and emotion about it. And so we want to make it so that everything that people share is confidential and safe and that, um, it's all great for learning and that you really are gentle on yourself as well. When, you know, take the quiz, it only takes like, literally we have over 90% completion rate, hundreds of people have taken it and, um, they've, uh, and it's taken less than, uh, five or six minutes. So take this step for yourself at ownyourmoney.com forward slash Joan, and then really consider how this is playing out in your organization and what you want to shift going forward. I have, I totally believe in you and I'm sure that Joan does too. And we really want to see you be the best leader, um, that you can be and really the best, um, wife, husband, um, mom, dad, uh, that you can create in the world. Bravo. Um, also there is just a wealth of wealth. Get that? Uh, a, <laughs> we will share the wealth all the time. Yeah. A, uh -huh. a wealth of resources that Belinda has at ownyourmoney.com. Uh, and please go there and, um, and take advantage of everything that Belinda has to offer. So Belinda, I just really wanted to say thank you so much. This has been really enlightening uh, and um, not something I really had given a whole lot of thought to before, truthfully. And, and so thank you for opening my eyes and the eyes of those who are uh, listening today. Thanks so much. You're welcome. You're welcome. Thanks so much uh, for having me on. And um, I'll also make sure to give you a link for the um, video series that I have coming up too. I think your, your listeners will really enjoy that to help them move we will definitely put, We will absolutely put that in the podcast link as well. So thank you. Um, all right. So we are done for today. Um, as you finish up your, as you do your cool down or head into the parking lot, I'm sure you're sitting there going, oh my goodness, my money store. Oh my God, that pivotal money moment. <laughs> Because um, my mind is racing at the moment. So did Belinda leave you wanting more? You're in luck. 
couple of ways you can take advantage of the many resources Belinda offers. First, let's not forget that quiz we spoke about, ownyourmoney.com forward slash Joan. It will help you to build your own money management and mindset skills. And once you take that assessment, you'll also have access to join her brand new free three-part video series called Enjoy Extra Cash every month. And that starts on April 19th. She's going to give you a plan that's going to help you turn your stress and worry about money into clear action and allow you to use money as a tool to lead your nonprofit better and enjoy the lifestyle you want for you and your family. Who does not want that? Get the assessment and then workshop access at ownyourmoney.com forward slash Joan. This must be the day of free video workshops. So so one final note, on April 17th, I will begin a free video workshop that I also offered last year. It was very successful called How to Build a Thriving Nonprofit. Thousands of folks had an opportunity to join us for that workshop, and we heard really great things about its value. It's free. Sign up at thrivingnonprofit.org. That's thrivingnonprofit, singular, dot org. Join us, and you can watch at any point at your leisure during the workshop period, and we think you will find it of great value. So until next time, thanks again for all you do. Nonprofits Are Messy is a service of Joan Gary Consulting. Widely known as the Nonprofit Dear Abby, Joan's leadership blog reaches over 40,000 unique visitors monthly from over 150 countries. Subscribe at www.joangary.com.